Welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy. I'm your host, Dr. Chris. It's good to be back. Um, it's been a little bit, and I apologize. Hopefully, we can get back to regular cadence. But anyway, today we're here to talk about bariatric surgery. Uh, bariatric surgery is a bit of an interesting topic uh, over the years. Uh, it's become quite popular, and uh, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there and a lot of things that people do that um, maybe aren't the best things for them, and we're going to talk about that. And more importantly, kind of talk about some of the actual surgeries and how they're performed. Um, and some of the advantages and disadvantages of the types of surgeries and some of the history, just because I'm a bit of a history buff. But <clears throat> without uh, further ado, uh, I guess I should mention that um, I do some bariatric surgery. Uh, mostly uh, I do sleeve gastrectomies on patients that have been identified either through referral or previous patients of my own uh, where we've started discussing it for various reasons. Uh, I've never been one of those uh, surgeons that just advertises for bariatric surgery or have a goal of doing just bariatric surgery. I have too many other interests, as you may have noticed by listening to some of the podcasts. But yeah, I felt that uh, maybe we should talk about this. I gave a presentation on this back in uh, 2019 to a bunch of the docs at one of my hospitals, and uh, I thought, well, why don't we uh, why don't we kind of Look at that again and see if um, there's something to talk about. So, here we go. Um, let's see. So, I think the, the first thing we should talk about is, you know, I get a lot of patients, they either get referred for bariatric surgery or they want to talk about bariatric surgery. And uh, as they start talking about it, surgery seems a little bit more aggressive than they want to go for. And... You know, that's certainly understandable. In terms of non-surgical weight loss, um, you know, the stat that I was always told uh, in training was that, uh, you know, less than 1% successful. And, you know, basically this has been somewhat well studied. Um, and basically overall out to several years, what you see is that it is less than 5% of patients, no, sorry, 57% of patients lose less than 5% of their initial body weight. Um, and that's uh, a study by Nordmo back in 2019. Um, and that's with, uh, you know, commercial weight loss programs. But in general, what you see is that uh, non-surgical weight loss is, is very difficult, involving lifestyle modification, uh, changing the way you do things, getting into an exercise habit, uh, exercise routine, um, as well as, you know, changing the way that you eat. And in the United States, unfortunately, we just, we just don't eat well. Uh, eating has become something that we tend to do on the fly, on the quick. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing about, you know, shopping on the out shopping on the outside of the uh, grocery store where the fruits and vegetables and meats and stuff are and dairy uh, rather than the inside where the processed food. There, there's something to that. Um, and unfortunately, too many people go towards the center of the frozen foods, the quick foods, the fast foods, um, and we just see that eating habits are not good. It's funny, I when I see bariatric patients, my, my thing is I, I like them to keep a food diary for a week. There's a couple things I do just to kind of 
assess a patient's level of commitment and obviously if they're not willing to take a food diary for a week then you know we're, we're not going to be long-term successful anyway so um, I don't let them kind of continue with the program until a, an accurate food diary has been kept and when we do that what we find has been kind of insane in terms of the, what people are eating kind of continues to blow my mind um, and more importantly, what people think is healthy continues to blow my mind. Uh, lots of brown uh, in diets, uh, lots of fried, lots of starch, um, not enough green. Uh, these are simple things, and they, they sound stupid, and they sound simple, and they sound contrite. Uh, and I'm not um, you know, taking it seriously, but fundamentally, if, if we could change some of that, uh, that would go a long way. Um, unfortunately, fast food, you know, it seems to be here to stay and until we get to the point of like regulating it, which politically I'm against, um, you know, we're, we're not going to make those changes. So you got to make those changes on your own. And, you know, we're all busy. We have, you know, two working uh, parents or maybe just one parent in the household and they're working all day and they're just trying to get food on the table. So it's pizza, it's fast food, it's, it's things that are easy. And I certainly understand that, but there are ways to do this eating better uh, without necessarily uh, increased time. And that, those are things that need to be investigated. Um, uh, I should disclose that uh, I've recently lost about uh, 60 pounds myself. Um, I had a bit of a, a health situation that uh, needed correcting. And somehow, uh, despite years of uh, being heavy, I, uh, this, this particular health crisis... Uh, kind of opened my eyes and uh, not unlike uh, an addict <clears throat> it was a bit of a rock bottom uh, thing for me and I sort of realized that as I you know, get very close to 50 here um, if I continue doing what I'm doing or had been doing that I wasn't going to be around as long as I wanted to be around and I still enjoy my work I still enjoy my family very much and I didn't want to not be here for them uh, or just not be here in general so uh, I, I took the approach of kind of looking at uh, everything that's not healthy for me uh, as poison. <laughs> um, I'm not saying it's going to work for everyone, but I literally just would sit and look and just be like, oh, no, I can't have that. That's, uh, that's going to kill me, uh, whether it be you know, starches or fatty foods or things like that. Uh, and somehow that worked. Um, and then as I started losing some weight, you know, I added some of those foods back. So, you know, I don't eat uh, in some weird draconian way anymore. But what I've learned is moderation, portion control. Uh, and I think for me, most importantly, uh, health-wise, I've just uh, I've gotten to a pretty vigorous uh, exercise routine. Uh, and it started off slow and it was hard. But, you know, I've, I'm into it now. And, you know, I go, you know, I work out six days a week. Uh, mostly cardiovascular, going to be adding some weight soon. Um, this is new, so I know I recognize this a little bit of uh, the uh, the fresh convert preaching uh, the gospel, so to speak. But uh, it is something I feel passionate about now, and uh, just in terms of my own health and, and and endurance and things like that. And what I've been surprised—maybe I should be surprised—but I have been surprised in the amount of energy that I have now in terms of just taking call, answering phone calls. Um, the stresses of everyday life um, just aren't as big of a, uh, a thing anymore simply because 
Uh, I just I just have more energy. I have more reserve. So uh, that's been kind of nice. Um, now, long term, uh, by the stats, I basically only have about a 30% chance of, uh, of keeping it off. But kind of know how my brain works. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of addicted now. And uh, it's better to be addicted to eating better and, uh, and exercising. So uh, I'll go with it for now. Um, that being said, that's not for everyone. Not everyone can do that. And, uh, you know, the dangers of hitting rock bottom before, uh, before you make a change is pretty difficult. And um, not everyone's lifestyle is amenable to making some of the changes that I've been able to make. Um, income-wise as well. Uh, these are hard. Um, less healthy foods are, are more, less expensive as well. Um, and that's definitely a consideration. So you got to keep all these things in mind. Um, and so in general, despite my story and my testimonial, which <laughs> I just gave, I guess, we see that um, non-surgical weight loss long-term just is not the solution, not without someone really changing how they do things. Um, so uh, it turns out that uh, you know, surgical weight loss works very well. In general, uh, very, between the surgeries, what you see is that um, uh, control groups, meaning non-surgical weight loss, don't really lose anything. Whereas, uh, for example, lap bands, they lose around 12 to 15%. Uh, and they keep it off after 15 years. Uh, uh, vertical band of gastroplasty, which isn't really done anymore, but it was at least studied years ago. Um, and they have roughly 20% in gastric bypass. It's roughly 30% of you know, their weight uh, coming down. Um, and it's not the best study, to be honest with you, but basically um, we see that uh, surgical weight loss is much more durable and obtainable for everyone. So what uh, weight loss surgeries are done? I think... When we look at the types of weight loss surgery, we um, basically there's four that are commonly done in the United States um, at this point. Uh, there's some things that are kind of newer that I'm not gonna talk about, but like the gastric balloon and things like that. But um, you know, in terms of history, the Ruin Y gastric bypass was probably the most, uh, most performed operation and uh, as well as uh, what's more, more recent is the sleeve gastrectomy, uh, gastric banding, and then uh, the D-switch or the duodenal switch, paleopancreatic diversion or duodenal switch. Um, these are all kind of synonyms. And there's different variations on each of these things. Um, and so we can go through these things. Uh, and over the last eight years, it's been kind of interesting. What you see is that uh, lap bands were very, very popular. Uh, almost as many lap bands and um, gastric bypasses were done back as recently as 2011. Um, and over time, we've learned that lap bands have their issues, and so they've fallen out to next to nothing at this point, um, whereas sleeves have become probably the dominant operation in the last uh, 10 years or so, as well as uh, the... Uh, Bypass kind of falling off just a little bit, but not uh, not much. And then um, the uh, duodenal switch becoming slightly more popular. Uh, it's still less performed these days, but it's starting to gain some popularity for some reasons. We'll go over here in a bit. Um, so I want to talk about uh, gastric bypass first. Um, 
basically it's the operation that was developed in the 1960s. It's sort of an offshoot of what we used to do for ulcer operations. But basically you make a small little pouch at the top of the stomach. And so you divide the stomach and you leave just three to four ounce sort of pouch at the very, very top part of the stomach only. And the rest of the stomach is actually divided and cut away. Uh, it's usually left, so you don't remove it, but it's, it's diverted. It's not in the loop anymore. Uh, the food never really sees it. Um, and then further down, you divide the intestine and you take the end that would go to the colon and you bring it up to that pouch and then you hook the intestine back to itself further on down. Um, and there are pictures you can see of this. I know this is an audio uh, format, but basically you end up with sort of this Rue-Y limb type thing. And um, you get a food channel and you get a digestive limb channel. Um, basically it bypasses the stomach. That's where the gastric bypass uh, comes in. And then you also don't really get much digestion in the duodenum or jejunum. And frankly, you get none. And so what you're doing is you're just bypassing a large portion of the intestine. So you get sort of two factors here. You get a restriction. So you can only eat, you know, that three to four ounces before you get full. Um, as well as the food that you do eat doesn't see any digestion until it actually hits the other part of the intestine where things are hooked to. So um, you're, it's sort of what we call a malabsorptive as well as a restrictive procedure. Um, and it's still the second most common procedure performed. Um, it's effective. It's proven. Uh, you know, in general, in the first couple of years, uh, in the first year, for example, uh, you're going to get greater than 60% of your excess weight loss. Um, and that's, you know, like three-quarters of patients get that. Uh, so it's rapid weight loss. Um, and, you know, over 12 to 15 years, uh, even without, you know, behavioral modification, you know, you still see 27% decrease in baseline weight uh, for a long period of time. Uh, so that's that's good. Um so it's an effective procedure, even without really any dietary modification. Um, it can be defeated uh, in terms of just in terms of calories that you eat and things like that. Your body does adjust, but if you learn how it works and learn how your body responds to it, it can be effective long term. Um, the bad things about it, just kind of quickly, um, you were, there's vitamin deficiency issues, B12 in particular. Uh, that needs to be chronically managed and, and dealt with uh, with your primary doc. Um, nutritional issues, uh, especially initially as you're bypassing, you're not digesting as much. And so you do really need to monitor your protein levels. You need to monitor vitamin levels and things like that. Um, dumping syndrome. Uh, gastric bypass patients will understand what this is and kind of just what it sounds like. You get cramping, severe diarrhea, sweating, flushing, high heart rate, um, and uh, it's in response to some sort of food. And it's not super well understood and it's not, com it's not consistent between patients and populations. So you can't say that it's, oh, it's just pasta or oh, it's this or that. Uh, and so what you end up with is uh, emergencies uh, unexpectedly sometimes and uh, you don't feel good when this happens. So that's a situation and it's somewhat common after uh, the bypass. Um, interestingly, uh, and this is more for docs, but when you have a gastric bypass, you can't access the duodenum or the distal portion of the stomach. And 
reason that's important is in certain bile duct issues with related to gallbladder disease and gallstones, um, if you have a stone that gets stuck in the main bile duct, you can't get to it with a scope, um, not very easily. Um, and so it has to be dealt with in a different way and a little bit more specialized. So um, that's a, a concern. It can be dealt with, but it's a concern. Um, it's a complicated surgery in terms of lap approach. Um, it's got a high learning curve. Uh, what you see is a really big decrease in complication rate after about a 50 to 100 cases, which is a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, so you really worry uh, about inexperienced surgeons performing that surgery. Um, some people think that with robotic surgery being a little more intuitive, a little more uh, easy to do, so the same things you might do in an open operation, that learning curve might be a little bit less, but that has not been well studied that I'm aware of yet. Um, so one of the things that I worry about with this operation is there are literally one, two, three, four different real staple lines and areas uh, that can leak and cause problems after surgery. And that can be a major problem. When these patients get sick, they can get sick really quickly. Um, um, and patients have died. Uh, the overall mortality rate there is there. Um, give or take, it's... Um, uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but my recollection is uh, uh, early mortality rate is somewhere between like uh, 0.1 and 1%. Um, uh, DVT is a risk for any of these surgeries. Um, more importantly, with this particular surgery, is you, you run the risk of long-term obstruction issues related to the way things get rerouted. Um, there's internal hernias and things that can cause bowel obstructions. And so uh, these can be an issue, and it can be very, very, you can get very, very sick from this. Uh, and you need to, it's difficult to see on studies that we would normally do for bowel obstruction. So we, in patients that have had a gastro bypass, you really kind of got to look at how to uh, look at their surgery and, and have a high, less incidence or less, uh, a lower threshold, sorry, lower threshold to uh, go back in and just take a look um, because they can present a little bit differently. Um, and then all the areas where you hook things back together, they can kind of tighten up and need to be dilated in the future. Um, structures can be dilated like we talked about. Um, but in the end, while they can be dilated, they can need a, a revisional surgery. Um, ba, ba, ba. The gastric banding, uh, I'm not going to talk about this a whole long time, but it's something that we thought was a really great idea because it's adjustable and, and really safe and, uh, you know, short-term uh, complication rate was next to nothing. So it's something that we thought was a really, really great idea. Unfortunately, as we've learned seemingly over and over and over again, uh, putting things around the stomach and or esophagus uh, doesn't work, doesn't do well long-term. They can erode, they can stricture, they can move. Um, and so while it was extremely popular, the popularity has decreased. Number one, we found that the bands, if you don't get them adjusted routinely, uh, they just don't work. So what would happen is the, the band, basically it's a band that goes around the top part of the stomach and there's little balloons that, that are in there and you can inflate them. So as a patient loses weight, you can inflate them a little bit to keep that same restriction in place, um, sort of that same three to four ounce restriction. So it's only a restrictive operation. Um, and so it did seem to be this great idea. 
problem is like as the patient loses weight, then the restriction kind of goes away. And so with surgeons needing to refill those and having to do that with some frequency, um, patients just didn't follow up and then their weight loss either stalled or they continued or they learned how to drink liquid calories. And that's the easiest way to defeat this particular operation. Um, as well as uh, the, the long-term issues that we talked about. So um, basically it's only a 13% BMI decrease, um, less uh, slower weight loss rather. Um, and a, uh, as it turned out, a much higher long-term reoperation long rate. You would think with some of the other operations having some complications, but you know there were slippages that had to be redone, erosions where they had to be removed, port failures or infections that had to be uh, redone, and so the reoperation rate can be as high as almost twenty percent. Um, in two thousand nineteen, the most common management of any kind of band complication is to remove it. <laughs> Uh, we get a fair number of patients every year that actually just they want their band removed. Uh, the difficulty is uh, they usually have to pay for that out of pocket because insurances tend not to cover um, band removal. So if someone's trying to talk you into band, I'd be very, very careful. Make sure that that's the right operation for you. Uh, the duodenal switch. Basically, this is uh, it's hard to visualize. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to a gastric bypass because you're. Um, you know, you're bypassing intestine essentially, uh, but it's more constructed like a sleeve uh, than a pouch at the top. Um, you keep the pylorus intact, so some of the digestion kind of remains similar. Uh, there's been some arguments that maybe a little less dumping. Uh, and this was first described in 1986. Um, it's got the best weight loss, 22.1% uh, BMI reduction versus 13.6 BMI reduction for gastric bypass. It's not quite as restrictive. Um, and for whatever reason, and I can't necessarily make this make sense, but maybe just because the better weight loss, um, but it has the best effect at controlling type 2 diabetes with a 95% remission rate, um, which is pretty good. Um, now, that being said, it sounds like the great operation. Well, it does have the highest early mortality rate at 2.7%, uh, highest complication rate at 25%, it's a longer operation, and the malnutrition issues can be very difficult to manage. Similar to the gastric bypass, you can't get to the duodenum anymore for ERCP and scopes. Um, and then lastly here, there's the sleeve, which is basically you just sort of remove the large sort of pouch portion of the stomach and leave a long tube um, sort of from the esophagus directly to the, to the duodenum. And the sleeve is a really popular operation because there's usually just one staple line that you have to worry about. Um, the overall complication rate is sort of somewhere between bands, which is by far the safest initially, um, and gastric bypass. Um, so it, it's thought of as very safe. Um, it's easy to manage. There's not all these other vitamin issues, uh, malnutrition issues, dumping syndrome, all that stuff. You just have this sort of restrictive type thing. Um, similar weight loss to the gastric bypass and uh, reasonable control of type 2 diabetes, uh, whereas if you remember we talked about the uh, duodenal switch having kind of more like 95% reduction in type 2 or remission of type 2 diabetes, whereas the sleeve is about 61%. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the funny things that when patients come and talk to me, they want to know if the sleeve ever gets removed. And I think people think that we somehow sleeve the stomach like a, like a 
the way you would sleeve cables in a, in a computer or uh, that we wrap it somehow. Um, and so we, the, the, the term sleeve just comes from kind of changing this big pouch and bag of the stomach into just a nice sleeve, sort of like just a, the top part of a tube sock, if you will. But there's no foreign body that gets implanted. There's nothing that sort of is done with the stomach other than removing that large bulky part. And it gets removed and, and uh, sent to pathology. So it's no longer with you. It's not reversible. Um, so yeah, it is non-reversible. I just mentioned that. Um, the top part, as we get towards where the esophagus and the stomach connect, uh, the blood supply there can get a little bit iffy, and that can be prone to uh, necrosis and leak. Um, it's been difficult to standardize the sizes and starting points related to how sleeves are constructed, so you see variable results. Um, the increase in pressure of the stomach because of the smaller vessel uh, can lead to severe reflux, but it's interesting as patients lose weight and the reflux gets less, so it, it's a very complicated relationship, but you really got to be careful in a patient that has severe reflux uh, doing a sleeve, um, and if you're not careful, the sleeve can get too small, which is very difficult to manage. Um, in terms of leaks, um, this is the early problem, right? And one of the nice things is once you get through this period, you know, sleeves are kind of, you don't really have to manage them long term. So that's one of the big advantages. But that top part that can leak in the cross um, is an issue. It's difficult to manage because um, with the way you're doing this, there's not really a lot of tissue left to do anything with. And so it's difficult to restaple. It's difficult to sew. Um, so traditionally, we literally just would um, put uh, a drain in, uh, make them nothing to eat, and use IV nutrition. And that can be a long road. Um, took care of a patient that came from another country, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But basically, they, um, they had a leak, and uh, it was months before they could eat normally again. Um, so that could be a long, long process until that heals. Um, nowadays, uh, there's some uh, novel techniques. Uh, basically, you can stent the area uh, to try and get that to heal. Uh, there are internal wound backs. Uh, Dr. Leeds and I talked about that, and that was kind of interesting. Um, and those have been pretty successful. Uh, that's difficult and really only for high volume, uh, sorry, uh, at a specialized center. Um, and then... I've seen where endoscopic clips, so GI dogs can actually put a clip across the, uh, the fistula part, a little hole, the leak, uh, with some success. And so, yeah, that's kind of cool. So there are better management strategies than, than there used to be, but it still can be very difficult. Um, and then the reflux is a major problem because there's nothing to repair the reflux with. So wrapping uh, the TIF procedure, um, there's not a whole lot to do. You can repair the hiatal hernia to restore intra-abdominal esophagus. That can help as well as um, the, uh, the links. Um, I don't do links, and for me, I, I've had difficulty sort of recommending or getting behind the links, but in this setting, that might be one of the better options. Um, and then with regard to all the procedures, uh, pulmonary embolus, uh, obese patients are higher risk for pulmonary embolus anyway. Some of these operations take a while. Increased abdominal pressure can in, uh, make it difficult for uh, blood to flow through the veins. Uh, prompting uh, pulmonary embolus. Um, gallstones, when you rapidly lose or gain weight, um, gallstones can be a problem. Um, that's sort of a theoretical complication. I mean, a lot of people have gallbladder problems, whether they're heavy or not, and so 
Uh, if someone loses a bunch of weight and then has to have their gallbladder out, I haven't really had anyone complain about that, but it's an issue, uh, particularly when you talk about needle switches and gastric bypasses. If they happen to get a stone in that main bowel duct, you can't access it, and it's difficult. Um, port site hernias, that's with any surgery, really, anyway, so whatever. Um, but then, more importantly, the way we reroute these things, um, you can get GI bleedings that can be difficult to manage because of kind of what we talked about before. So that's just a quick overview, uh, roughly 20 minutes or so, of kind of the, the various procedures um, that are done. I think, you know, at, at my practice, what we, we do is because we're not a primary focus bariatric surgery at this point, we, my approach has been that, you know, in carefully selected patients, this can be very successful. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm hard on them, but I basically, I make them get their own psychological eval. You know, I kind of figure that if patients aren't willing to make their own phone call and get their own psychologist to, you know, talk to, then they're not going to be successful long-term. I make them keep the food diary. Um, and that's, uh, that's helpful as well, just to kind of talk about how they eat and show where they're making some poor choices. Um, and uh, then nutrition, uh, I do have someone I work with um, that helps with that, so that can be helpful. Um, I, I used to think the nutrition part and the psychological part was just insurance requirements that we had to jump through, but the nutrition part is key. Um, getting in with the nutritionist and my patients that see the nutritionist routinely afterwards um, do much better than than those that just kind of see the nutritionist and then go on their merry way because you just fall back into old habits and not realizing that something's unhealthy for you is pretty easy to do we we tend to eat the way that we grew up and if your parents were telling you that this is healthy and this is a good thing to eat it's hard to flush that it's hard to get rid of that if it's not so seeing nutritionist long-term, I think, is much more beneficial than not. So I highly recommend that for patients. Um, the psychological eval, uh, we've uncovered a couple patients over the years that had significant psycho issues uh, that needed to be addressed. And so um, I do think it's important. And, uh, you know, so many of us, when we're dealing with life, um, some of what we deal with is the, uh, the food choices that we make. And when you're not doing well psychologically, um, Food is just a convenience or a crutch or a, you know, or even medicine at that point. So uh, learning to control those psychological issues uh, can help with that as well as just improving your overall health as well. And I've had a number of patients that, well, they didn't seem to have just tons and tons going on. They ended up seeing their psychologist for a while anyway, just to kind of work through whatever they work through. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm always supportive of good psychological health. So, yeah. And I, I think I think we've been mostly successful. I think most patients do extremely well. And I've been fortunate to, uh, as I've transitioned to doing this robotically, we don't, um, we haven't had a ton of, uh, of complications. Um, I had a leak a number of years ago. Um, that did seal and we got the patient through that. Um, but that operation was done laparoscopically. Since I switched to robotic surgery for this, I, I have not had issues with it. So uh, I've been very, very happy with the results on the robotic platform for sleeves. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, that's been great. Um, I want to talk a little bit longer or a little bit more about where to get your surgery. And 
you know, if you're researching this and you're thinking surgical weight loss may be the thing for me, I think it's important to find the surgeon that you blend with and that is going to take care of you. I think there's a lot of people that run successful weight loss surgery clinics and they do a lot of weight loss surgery. That does not mean they're not good surgeons. Um, but you want someone that's going to help you as well and listen to you, and that's extremely important. So if you're just seeing someone where they have this big, giant program and you're not able to actually see the surgeon, you have no access to the surgeon, and you only kind of meet the surgeon the day of surgery and then you never see them again, that may not be a thing for you. Uh, maybe it is, but uh, that would be something I'd be pretty leery of of a patient. You want someone that's actually going to take care of you, takes the time. Um, and they still may have tremendous resources and other doctors to help them, and that's great. Um, it doesn't, that's, that's wonderful. It's just a matter of you want someone that actually cares about you, not just the number of surgeries that are done. And so I think that's important. Um, I think the other thing that's important is surgeon experience. You want someone that is able to do the surgery safely. Uh, and that's difficult, but don't be afraid to ask. Um, that's something that you need, to, uh, you need to know. If you don't, um, you know, you'll not be informed. Uh, and then lastly, and we see a lot of this, and there's a lot of stuff on the internet. And I, right before I started this cast, I actually did a quick search, and it's all over the place. When you look at low-cost surgery weight loss options, um, Mexico, right? In the United States, a lot of people go to Mexico to have their surgery. It's significantly cheaper. If your insurance doesn't cover it, it's at least half as much, if not a little more. Um, in terms of out-of-pocket expenses. And look, there are good, great even, surgeons down in Mexico at various centers that do excellent work and care. Um, and I think the vast majority of patients that go down there, because there's a lot, they do well and they do fine. So I'm not saying that that's what you should do. For the most part, it's probably safe. But here's the problem. This is why I would really, really caution against it. The follow-up, right? So if you live in Florida and you go to Mexico and Tijuana to have your weight loss surgery and you go a couple days before, you meet the surgeon, you have some labs, they do some things and you pay your money, you have your surgery, you stay in a hotel for a couple days and everything seems to be fine, so you come on home. Great, so now you're back at your hometown and now you start running a fever. Okay, well in a traditional setting, you'd call your surgeon, hey, I'm running a fever, this is a problem. And your surgeon, after weight loss surgery, would say, go to the emergency room so we can do some tests. Well, the problem is, and I've seen this happen, I've literally seen this exact thing happen, where a patient didn't really want to talk to her primary care doctor about having gone to Mexico. So she just goes, she's literally one week after a sleeve gastrectomy, she comes into her surgeon, or not a surgeon, her primary care doctor, and says, I'm having a fever. Okay, well, anything changed? Nope. Okay, well, you're just having a fever. Okay, I'm having some stomach pain. Oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, well, I have a surgeon. Why don't you have, well, you know, have a check out? So all of a sudden, so a week after a sleeve surgery, she sees her primary care doc. He just makes a general referral for abdominal pain to me. And I end up seeing her because I didn't know any of this was going on two days later. So now it's been close to 10 days from her surgery. 
And she comes in my office and she looks like hell. Um, she was tachycardic. Her heart rate was up in the 120s. Her blood pressure was like 100 over 60. Um, she was pale. She was kind of sweaty. She did not look good. Um, and we started talking. I was like, fever, abdominal pain. Hmm. Something's just not adding up. And then I, I examined her belly and I saw these incisions. And I'm like, uh, what's this? And so it turned out she'd had the sleeve. Uh, she had a sleeve in Mexico. And so I admitted her, and we did a contrast study, and sure enough, she had a leak. Um, and unfortunately, it went untreated for 10 days. And, well, the leak went untreated for at least four that you might have known about it had she had the surgery done in the United States and contacted her surgeon. So, you know, and long term, to be honest, with you, I don't know what happened to her because we stabilized her. We got a drain placed over the area, and... I started her on IV nutrition, controlled her infections, and then I ended up transferring her to one of these higher level centers for possible wound back therapy and things like that. And unfortunately, um, I didn't get the follow up on that. So I don't know exactly what happened to her. Um, but she was still very sick when I sent her. So, you know, who knows? So obviously, they have experience. And obviously, they're trying to, you know, perform a benefit to society or eh, maybe that's the wrong that's that's too <laughs> that's too optimistic they're trying to you know create a service where they can make a living um, and provide something that patients need and so in general that works but the problem is the follow-up right because you're just not going to fly back to Tijuana to get your care you're not going to call your doc or if you call your doc he's going to tell you to go to the emergency room um, I had a patient recently that, uh, you know, she said she had a sleeve in California and it took forever for her to admit that it had been done in Tijuana. Um, and so there's a little bit of stigma of patients know that doctors in the United States aren't um, super enthused by that. Uh, bariatric surgeons that, you know, see patients, they don't want to see patients that weren't done by them because they don't have control over sort of the whole part of the process. Uh, and in some surgeons, they'll make them pay just to enter the practice so they can be taken care of. And so you don't necessarily even save the money in the long term. So be very, very careful about taking uh, the cheap way out, so to speak. Uh, either work with your insurance company or save a little bit longer. Um, but I highly encourage you to have surgery in the United States. I'm not saying it's safer. Um, you know, my suspicion is that it's probably similar. Um, with high, when you compare high volume centers to high volume centers, my suspect, my, my impression, it would be similar. The difference is, is if you're in the United States and you're in, you know, your own location, you can follow up, you can get the help that you need should something go wrong. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't go wrong all that often in terms of very wrong, but you still can get the help you need. Um, so yeah, so bariatric surgery in Mexico, I think only if you're from Mexico. Um, but that's just my opinion. I know there's people that think differently. Um, so, yeah. So that is my take on weight loss surgery. Um, I do think it's beneficial. I think it's good for patients. Um, I'm happy to see that insurance companies seem to be covering this better than they used to. It seems like years ago, whenever we tried to get a patient approved, it took months and months, and they made them jump through all these hurdles. Uh, and they've shown over and over again that long-term uh health is improved with weight loss surgery and so I think that the insurance companies finally realized that if they 
if they pay for the weight loss surgery and they are uh, less likely to have to pay for diabetes and other weight-related health problems in the future. And uh, I think some companies recognized that early on, but they kind of felt that, well, that's fine, but patients going to change insurance and that'll be some other insurance carrier's problem later. Uh, and I think they've all kind of realized that, you know, if we all kind of play ball here, then we're all going to decrease our expenditures. Um, so, because honestly, in the end, that's what drives things. Um, and in this case, where we're driving decreased health dollars by increased or decreased number of uh, dollars spent on weight-related problems, that's a good thing for everyone, uh, the insurance companies as well as the patient. So if it's something for you, um, I can tell you that in general, and these, these haven't changed much, uh, BMI, which is a body mass index, and you can Google, there's all kinds of calculators. It's based on your height and your weight. Um, a BMI greater than 40 is an absolute indication for weight loss surgery. So no other consideration. If you have a BMI that's greater than 40, then you qualify for weight loss surgery. If you have a BMI, if you have a BMI greater than 35 with various uh, health conditions that are related to weight loss, such as uh, hypertension, diabetes, things like that, then um, it's covered as well. And more importantly, it's you know what the recommendations are from uh, ASBMS and other agencies that are foundations and organizations that um, support weight loss surgery. So, weight loss surgery. There you go. Uh, this has been Dr. Chris, the surgery guy. I am uh, really glad to be back. I uh, want to get more into the habit of doing this. I really do enjoy it. Um, I know I don't have tons and tons of listeners, but it's it's weird just sitting in front of this microphone for 40 minutes to an hour. There's something about it it's sort of cathartic. I, I don't know why. It's like I'm in my own head and uh, just talking myself through stuff. and It helps me think, and I, I enjoy it. So uh, fortunately, with the, the 2020 being... 2020, um, I had extra time, so we got a bunch of podcasts done, and then when things kind of loosened back up, uh, man, we got super, super busy, and it was difficult to, uh, to even breathe there for a little bit, and uh, things are getting back more to a normal cadence, so I'm, I'm hopeful we'll be back next week. Um, until then, we'll see you next time, and thank you very much for joining. In the meantime, uh, thanks again to uh, Approaching Nirvana and Andrew over there for the uh, soundtrack. And uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully.